When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Regardless of which side you were on in the election, uh, regardless of whether your candidate won or lost, the sun would come up in the morning. And that is one bit of prognosticating that actually came true. Last night, I congratulated Donald Trump and offered to work with him on behalf of our country. She congratulated us. It's about us. This loss hurts. But please, never stop believing that fighting for what's right is worth it. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast the show about the president-elect, Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. So I guess America couldn't face the prospect of this show coming to an end. The voters have spoken. It's going to be four years of Donald Trump in the White House and four more years of Trumpcast. As you know, I didn't want to be here, but I must respect the will of the voters. In all seriousness, I want to thank all the people who've been sending me messages about the show on Twitter. It means a lot to me that it has helped people cope and to make sense of this surreal experience. And that's why I'm going to keep going with it. This morning, I woke up after not many hours of sleep with a feeling that I can only describe as a kind of pure dismay about the future. We've been talking for months about what a horrendous human being Donald Trump is and how unprecedented and dangerous his presidency could be. Intellectually, I knew it was possible he would win. But in my heart of hearts, I just didn't think that we as a country would turn our backs on racial progress, on economic sanity, and on trying to be a democratic example to the rest of the world. But I got up and I came into the office because I knew that the only thing that could possibly make me feel a little less depressed was talking to some of my friends at Slate. We had a big team meeting, which involved some crying, some hugging, and some of the smartest people I know trying to make sense of what the hell just happened. After it was over, I pulled a few of my colleagues into the studio to dig into what this could mean for us as people committed to social and racial justice and as independent journalists committed to telling the truth in an era that seems to have less and less use for it. Today, you're going to hear from three people I turn to for understanding. Isaac Chotner, Julia Turner, and Jamel Bowie. That made for a much longer show than usual. But bear with me. Each of them has something important to say about what Trump's election means. No tweets today. Only tears. My first guest today is Isaac Chotner. You probably know those fantastic interviews he does in Slate, He was also up late last night like the rest of us and wrote a terrific, passionate piece about what the hell just happened. Isaac, thanks for joining me. Hey, Jacob. So I think we're both feeling pretty low today, but, uh, you know, we've been on the same wavelength about how bad this would be. And now that it's happened, I I thought you'd be the right person or one of the right people to talk to about uh, what happened and what we should anticipate. Yeah, you know, I, I've been trying to think about it last night and this morning, and it, the way I've co- sort of been conceiving it in my own mind is that there are the things that we kind of know are going to happen, but we, we sort of can't fathom them. Things like a uh, permanent conservative majority on the Supreme Court, the gutting of the social safety net through the Ryan budget, um, Wall Street reform coming to an end, the ending of regulations, all of these things, Rudy Giuliani perhaps being in charge of enforcing civil rights, you know, th- these things that we're pretty sure are going to happen, and it's just awful to think about. And then you have the things that you can't even conceive of at all, like what will it mean to have Donald Trump running our foreign policy? What will it mean to for the NSA and the CIA to be run by a guy who, you know, is is the man we know Donald Trump to be? What will it mean for him to be in charge of a country with nuclear weapons? And those things, I, I don't think we can even 
begin to contemplate. You know, a lot of Trump supporters said when asked about his most outrageous statements about deporting immigrants or the wall or Mexicans or, or China, said, well, I don't really believe he would do any of that, but I sort of like that he's saying it. Does he now, what, is it, what does that mean to him in terms of a mandate? I mean, do you think he has to follow through with a lot of those extreme policies? Do you think he wants to follow through with a lot of extreme policies? Or was that just part of the celebrity entertainment factor of the campaign? And now he's in office and he can do that or whatever he wants. You know, I, I think that my sense of a Trump presidency, and obviously we're all just completely speculating here since we have no idea what's going to happen about a number of things. Um, but my, my general sense is that the things that are seem unlikely to do, like build a giant wall, I don't think he's going to do those things. But you know, the things that maybe are crazy but maybe easier to do, like cut off immigration from certain areas of the world or deport more immigrants than we're deporting now, those things I could see him following up on. My sense, though, is that with his supporters is that the bond they have with him is entirely, uh, let's say, not not rational. And it would seem to me that he can get by with his rhetoric and that sort of that sort of bond he's he's formed with them without having to follow through on every last thing. So I think he'll he'll be fine without doing that. I mean, he's not going to appoint a special prosecutor to go after Hillary Clinton, but people are going to forget about that in three days, I assume. Right. But of his more specific promises, I mean, the kind of the two that stand out are, are building the wall and, and having some kind of trade sanctions on China. I mean, doesn't he have to, just as a matter of good faith with his supporters, follow through at some level on both of those things? You know, it would seem like it, but given what those supporters have swallowed for the last 15 months, I, I do wonder. I mean, he'll build some sort of fence at the border and call it a wall or he'll build a wall over some of it. or I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's just the guy has so little focus and cares so little about the detail of things that it's hard for me to imagine him putting in the political capital to do something like the wall, which I actually think would be tough to make happen. But maybe you're right. I, I'm not sure. It's a, it's a really good question. So having warned of the authoritarian prospect of a Trump presidency, how authoritarian do you think a Trump presidency is likely to be? And in a way, it's the same question about whether he is a, going to follow through in a disciplined way with a lot of what he said during the campaign, or whether he's, as you were sort of indicating a second ago, doesn't have the attention span, you know, to be, to be the main reason Trump could never be Hitler is he doesn't have the focus, right? I mean, he's, he's, on, he's on to the next thing. He doesn't have an ideology he's been pursuing for years. He has a bunch of things that popped into his head. I, I think that that's right. I, my concern would be that Look, the guy, I used to argue with people about whether Donald Trump really wanted to be president. People would say, well, of course Donald Trump doesn't want to be president. He doesn't want to have to be in the Oval Office. He doesn't want to have to work 15 hours a day. He doesn't want to have to think about policy. I don't think Donald Trump has to do any of those things as president, because Donald Trump has just run the most unorthodox campaign of our lifetimes by doing exactly what he wanted. And I'm sure he's going to continue doing exactly what he wants, which is watching cable news or God knows what. He can, he can do whatever he wants. Everyone who says, well, Donald Trump is president has to do A, B, or C. He can do whatever he wants. But to answer your question, I do think that in terms of having the focus, the sustained focus to, to do things, I don't think he's going to be Hitler. I don't think he's going to make an effort to persecute Muslims, say. I don't think that Donald Trump is going to sit in the Oval Office and say, how can I persecute Muslims? What I do think he will do is put people in the bureaucracy, or Corey Lewandowski and Rudy Giuliani will put people in the bureaucracy who don't care about Muslims being persecuted, who don't care about investigating hate crimes, who don't care about these things. So that's how I think a Trump administration, and especially with a Republican Congress, they will be less looked at and investigated, and there will be fewer checks and balances. That's how I think a Trump presidency could shade into authoritarianism. If the Trump presidency shades into authoritarianism, how resilient or not, do you think American institutions are likely to be in response to that? And I guess let me let me break it in half. Give me the argument for the resiliency of American democratic institutions against an authoritarian reach from a President Trump. And give me the argument then on the other side about what about how American democracy might not stand up very well to an authoritarian president. So you're giving me the chance to give a positive case. Okay. Yeah, um, well, I'll give the positive yeah. case for, first, and then let's talk about the risks. Look, I mean, this guy's coming into, coming into the White House with very little popularity. He's going to have very little popularity, I assume, because I think he will be incredibly unpopular. He always has been. And 
I think you could see in a year him being extremely unpopular, Republicans being threatened with midterm losses, and so they maybe distance themselves from him a little bit. Uh, the Supreme Court, you know, Anthony Kennedy and the rest of the Supreme Court justices sort of, you know, if Trump tries anything, they, they resist him. The federal bureaucracy remains more resilient than I fear it will be. That, that all seems possible, and maybe that's the case, that there really will be resistance. But if we want to talk about institutional resistance, if you look at the institution, the institutional resistance of the Republican Party, which was obviously much less than I think people who wanted to stop Trump had hoped, and if you look at sort of the uniform control they have of Congress, I just have very little faith that that's going to hold, that Trump is going to, you know, not going to be able to walk right over them. I wrote a piece for Slate several months ago basically saying that my prediction was that what Trump wants is to kind of do what he wants and be corrupt and enrich his family and engage in his authoritarian tendencies. And what the Congress wants is essentially to pass the Ryan budget. And I see no reason why both sides can't come to that agreement essentially and do that. What about the press? I mean, in, in, in countries that are turning authoritarian, generally, the first first ground of friction is, is conflict with the independent media. Do you think the press is going to stand up to Trump, and how is he going to react to it? You know, I'm actually slightly optimistic about some of the press, um, the print press, news sites like Slate, and, you know, print magazines, and things like that. I, I'm, in terms of cable news and, and other things, I'm obviously less optimistic after what we've just witnessed. But it's just, you know, it's just so hard to feel heartened by anything we've seen in the last 16 months to really believe that, you know, this guy is going to face the full force of America's checks and balances and institutions. Yeah. Do you feel like you've just gone from being a, a, an analyst to being a dissident? I mean, reading you now, this, you know, I read the piece you wrote last night in, in Outrage and Anger, but boy, it's starting to feel like, like journalism from a cu- country under, under siege, under democratic siege. No, I mean, I don't, I don't feel like a dissident in that, you know, I have a lot of friends who are journalists in countries like Pakistan, and they're obviously facing real dangers that I'm not. But I do feel that, you know, for the first time I've ever gotten the sense, you, you do sort of feel like this might not be okay, and that you know, people may start coming after journalists, not that we're going to be locked up and tortured, but that people will start coming after journalists in a different way. And, and that is worrisome. And it's, um, it's a catastrophe. I, I, don't, I don't see any way to, that this doesn't change the country. I was, um, you know, I was thinking back to 2004, where was the last time I was so depressed by a presidential election because it felt like the country had just validated four years of George W. Bush, which I and many other people felt were a disastrous four years for the country, um, probably the most disastrous four years since at least the Nixon administration. But the days passed, you felt like life was going to go on and some bad things would happen and there'd be another election in four years and there will be another election in four years. But my God, I, I don't think things are going to go on as before. Four years is a hell of a long time when it comes to Supreme Court vacancies and, and when it comes to the amount that President Trump can do on his first day in office with a stroke of the pen. I mean, he can repeal much of the Obama presidency and much of what Obama did over eight years just on his own authority without even going to Congress. Yeah, no, I, well, I was just going to say two things about that. The first is it's astonishing to me and depressing just to think about the Obama legacy now. You have both the actual legacy of bills he's passed, Dodd-Frank, Obamacare, etc., um, which are going to be, I, I think, overturned. And then you have the symbolic legacy of electing this thoughtful guy who's the first non-white president, and it's followed up with the election of a racist. It's, it, both are completely, completely shattered. Um, it's sort of impossible to fathom. What do you think this means for for the Democrats and for the kind of liberalism you and I tend to gravitate to? I mean, there there are people who are Sanders supporters who said, said Hillary Clinton would be a terrible nominee and we need a different kind of revolution than the one we just got. But is the uh, is the social democratic left now empowered within the Democratic Party? And is that going to be what represents the opposition to Trump as opposed to some more Clintonian form of liberalism? Uh, I see you're putting me in your elite category of uh, centrist Democrats. I'm just kidding. Um, you know, I don't know. I, that, that's a really good question. I, I, I did I did wake up this morning and feel a little bit like, you know, the Sanders people. And, you know, I, I was 
in the primary, I you know I I understood both arguments, but I the, the, the Sanders people had had their argument about about Hillary Clinton and about the Democratic Party. It does seem with the electoral map we have now that there's something to be said for it, which doesn't mean that I think Bernie Sanders necessarily would have beaten Donald Trump or that his wing is going to take over the party. I, I think probably the most likely thing would be sort of an Elizabeth Warren synthesis, where essentially you have someone very sympathetic to Bernie Sanders' ideas and to the left wing of the party, but also someone who is a pretty canny politician, someone who's seen as some, you know, a practical person in Washington. Um, I, I think someone like that who can fill that space, I think, is, you know, would be the, the sort of solution for the Democratic Party into sort of how to paper over those differences. When we uh, get over our despair, Isaac, which we better do pretty quickly, we have to focus on what we can do to, to, to mitigate the harm of a Trump presidency and where we can check him and, and stop him from, from executing the worst of his ideas and the worst of his plans. What do you think the priorities are for people who oppose Trump now looking at his possible agenda? We can't stop everything he's going to do. What should we focus on? You know, I think different people should focus on different things. Um, you know, if if you're a journalist, you focus on whatever story you're doing about government corruption or trying to explain something that's going on in the country. If you're an average citizen, you can, you know, I talked about this in my piece today, you can go sign up and work with one of the Syrian refugees who already got here. Um, I assume that's going to stop, but there are people here and, you know, they need assistance and so on. So I think, I don't think there's one, there's one thing that, that everyone should do. I, I, I would just say, thinking about one of the dangers Trump poses, which I, which I hope that people, people are cognizant of, we've now had Trump winning without the popular vote. We have a Senate, which a lot of people think is dem- undemocratic in, you know, in its existence. And we have a House of Representatives with gerrymandering and all these things. And, you, you know, I, I'm definitely worried going forward about things like voting rights and making it harder to vote. I'm worried about you could see possibly blue-leaning states that are now controlled by Republicans doing things like apportioning their electoral votes proportionally. I, I, I'm worried about these sort of these sort of encroachments on democracy, uh, those sort of small things about they seem procedural, but that's definitely one of my major concerns with Trump. And I hope that I hope it becomes a concern in, in the country, the way we start conceiving of that, those things. It's funny, though, I think a demagoguery of Trump kind is a, is a kind of excessed defect of democracy. In some way, it's the result of a system that's too responsive to democratic impulses. And I guess what you're arguing is that, that it was possible for a demagogue to be elected in part because of the un, the naturally undemocratic features of our system, the things like the Senate and the Electoral College, which make it possible to govern without getting what would be a real national majority. No, right. I mean, right. If you were writing a novel of, of Trump or something, you would have him getting the popular vote, and then you would have sort of uh, some sort of electoral college system where it was sent to some body like the Senate and the elites in that body. I know this isn't actually how it works in America, but the elites in that body then chose the non-crazy demagogue. But in fact, you were going to have Donald Trump be president, getting not even a plurality of the votes. You were going to have Republicans control the Senate, which, I mean, I haven't done the math, but I'm sure their senators were elected with a with fewer votes than the 48 Democrats, and you're going to have a House of Representatives, again, which, you know, I, I haven't, we haven't seen the final statistics for this election, but generally is way out of whack to the amount of votes Republicans get. It's, it's, a, it's, a, crazy, it's a crazy thing. How do you write about Trump going forward without normalizing him, which which we don't want to do, but without sounding sort of like a crank? Because at some point when he, he holds a press conference to uh, an, announce the nominee for deputy secretary of commerce and we go into our litany of, of his sexual assault and racism and, and financial mismanagement and not, and not following democratic norms, I mean, you start to sound obsessive or, or repetitive or absurd. I mean, he's now going to be president? How do we treat him? Well, let me, let me just play devil's advocate for a second. Um, I, I agree with you that, you know, we need, we need to figure out how to write about him. And as a writer, you definitely don't want, you definitely want to, or as a writer or a journalist of some sort, you want to find a way of explaining things in different ways and so on. I, I do think, and, and maybe you'll disagree, but I, I was pretty upset over the last 16 months that fewer people were cranks. Um, the, the lack of just sheer outrage and disgust that this man was a major party nominee and now the president-elect, to me, was astonishing. And I could not believe that this guy was invited on Saturday Night Live. He was invited on Jimmy Fallon. He was treated 
with kid gloves and interviews on, you know, major cable television stations. And, you know, maybe people who read me or, or some other people thought, oh, my God, they're hitting the same note about Trump being this authoritarian demagogue. I, I was surprised that there wasn't more of that. And I, I almost wish that our culture had had been a little crankier, had been a little angrier, had been a little more moralistic. I know that's a loaded word, but that's sort of the way I feel. I've been speaking to Isaac Chotner of Slate Magazine. Isaac, thanks for speaking to me, and thanks for hanging on to your outrage. Thank you, Jacob. Last night, I was at the Bell House with Mike Pesca, the host of The Gist. We were hosting what was supposed to be an election night party and turned into an impromptu election night wake. Julia Turner was here at Slate until the middle of the night directing our coverage. Julia, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. We were uh, not anticipating there being too many more Trump casts, Jacob, but it looks (laughs) like you've got a a longer stretch, podcasting stretch ahead of you. Called back into action. Yeah. I, you know, I, d- I don't know where it goes from here, but we're going to keep doing it. And we certainly felt the need to, to do the show today. Um, boy, it was impressive. I mean, Slate, Slate, everyone was up covering this, writing great things late into the night. We just spoke to Isaac Chotner, who wrote a terrific piece at about two in the morning last night, trying to ask the question, how did this happen? Tell me a little bit about what was happening in the middle of the night at Slate. I mean, people were dealing with their own feelings, too, as as well as trying to, to produce high-quality journalism about these events. It was... It, it was um, it was great to be with my wonderful colleagues as this incredible shift in our expected outcome took place, and just awful as well. I mean, it, there was a lot of humanity happening alongside all of the work that was being done. I mean, we, you know blithely, like the rest of the country, had not planned for this outcome. We had an extensive set of articles and features that were all ready to go for us to to pull a trigger when when Hillary tipped over 270, um, some of which are currently being refashioned for your delectation in light of the news, and some of which are getting tossed on the scrap heap. We will never get to run our, holy cow, a woman president cover, or if not, never, at least not for four more years. So we really, we sort of in the last couple of days as the polls tightened had thought like we should probably have like at least a post-it note somewhere of like who's on what beat if this goes the other way. But really, as we were starting to plan that, we thought we're just not going to know what it feels like until it happens. Like you can't pre-write an outcome like this. You can't, you can't anticipate an outcome like this. And so we decided to basically just play it by ear. And then the whole staff sprang into action as the, as the outcome became apparent. Um, And, you know, we had 30 people here till four in the morning last night. There's a tremendous instinct to blame the media for lots of things in one way or the other, for getting it wrong, for not anticipating this. And some people argue that the media was too soft on Trump. What, Looking back on it and not talking about Slate's coverage in particular, but where do you think the coverage of Trump went wrong? Where do you think we the media has, has something to feel bad about or regret? I think the argument that the media has a great blame to take for the rise and and election of Trump is completely bogus. I mean, I I guess my analysis here, I should stipulate that I essentially don't count cable news as media. I think of cable news as like garbage bloviation. And um, it's it's just how millions of people get their information. uh, Yeah, I know. But I think, uh, right. So I probably should count cable news. Um, Not counting cable news, I think the media has nothing to account for. I think there probably is something to the argument that um, the way cable news covered the primary, gave Trump a lot of air to win that primary. But I think once he was the general election candidate, like he needed to be covered in a blanket way. And I think the places that had been a little soft on him from the beginning uh, tightened up uh, on the TV front. And I think if you look at the rest of the journalistic world, there was just an incredibly impressive array of investigations of opinion writing uh, and of people really calling out that this was not a normal election. This was not a normal candidate. I don't think the media could have possibly made that clearer. I think the concern and question I have is who is the media for and who's consuming it and who's reading it, right? We have seen several stories over the past months about the kind of Facebook information bubble, about the set of people getting their information from Infowars. There was that fascinating segment on This American Life recently um, where one of the interviewers was talking to a fellow in, I think, Michigan, um, who was like, yeah, you know, like whole parts of 
Michigan or under Sharia law already and just like took and was like incredulous that she pointed out that that was not actually true. A snapshot Um, from the alternate reality. Yeah. So I think the question of how journalism conducted by the classic rules of like tell true facts to people and offer intellectually honest interpretations of them reaches a broader set of people. I think that's a question journalists should be thinking about. Yeah. I mean, Slate is not on the one hand, on the other hand, equal time, false equivalency journalism. But it's also not partisan journalism. It strives to do something in between. And it feels like that space is getting narrower, the space where you're you're committed to truth and, and telling it like it is, but not giving in to the idea that you're speaking to the choir, that you're preaching to an audience of people who already agree with you. I mean, that's Slate hates doing that. But how do we avoid in this polarized political environment where people choose their media based on the facts they want and the reality they want to live in? How do we avoid getting pulled into that? It's a really interesting challenge. I mean, I think when I took over as editor two and a half years ago, I came into the this role at Slate at a moment where f- the Facebook boom was at its height and you could very easily get a lot of traffic and attention to your posts if you just told people what they wanted to hear. There was sort of the outrage internet we did the feature on a couple of years ago um, where you could just sort of cry shame and point scolding fingers at your opponents and roll in the clicks. And we we were, have always been wary about not doing that. But one of the things I thought about a lot taking over is I really want to make sure that Slate's journalism sets out to change minds, like sets out to change the way people think about the world to rigorously and honestly engage the other side of the argument. Then we encountered this campaign. And uh, the intellectually honest way to deal with this campaign was not to pretend that Donald Trump's policy proposals um, were serious or worthy of sober consideration, but to call out the fact that he's a man who seems in his temperament, his emotional makeup, um, his experience, his record of conduct towards all types of groups of people completely unfit to lead the country. And so... So that duty to being intellectually honest, which I think is the highest duty we have at Slate, instead of leading us to kind of challenge the left and encourage people to to look under rocks and challenge their own assumptions, um, I think it became more important to, to hold up the idea that a, that a Trump uh, presidency was, as we called it, the, the impending apocalypse. Yeah, because, you know, on Facebook, as you're saying, all media looks the same, you know, Slate or Breitbart, New York Times or Fox News. It's more like, you know, chicken or meat. I mean, it it doesn't, to the consumers, it's just a, cho- a choice. It's not a choice between journalism and pseudo-journalism, which in reality it is. Yeah. And, and I think, I don't really have the answer to that. <laughs> you know, but I do, you know, I do think that we've been very careful, even as we've made quite clear in our coverage. I mean, the, the intro of your show has like goose-stepping marching noises and takes as a given that the election of Donald Trump would be a disaster for our country. And the Trump apocalypse watch was a daily feature that took as a given the fact that his election would be a terrible thing. But I think we, you know, we've also taken care to be rigorous and to look at, to be fair about evaluating what he says and calling him out when what he says is terrible, but be... um honest when it's not. I just asked Isaac Schotner this question too, but how do we think about doing journalism during a Trump administration? How do we strike that balance between, on the one hand, avoiding false equivalents, but on the other hand, avoiding just being sounding cranky and speaking to the choir and just always going into this litany of how horrendous this guy is? I mean, we don't want to normalize him, but to a certain extent, he is going to be our reality. He is going to be normal. Yeah, I think it's going to be a narrow gap to shoot, and it's the prime thing that we're going to be thinking about um, as we prepare for the transition. Uh, You know, to me, I think it is more important to keep reminding people what an anomalous figure Trump is. I mean, it's the job of journalists, the most important job of journalists, to call people in authority to account. And as Frank Four published on our site last night, uh, we've got a guy with very troubling authoritarian instincts coming into the presidency after two double-term administrations that made broad use of executive power. There's a recipe for real trouble here. Trump is so erratic and so uncommitted to any actual ideals that I have no idea what he's actually going to try and do or whether he'll just appoint a bunch of uh, bad actors who potentially take that template as as an opportunity to do bad things. But journalists are going to have a lot of work to do covering that and, and exposing 
situations like that. So that seems to me like the prime target. But I do think the question of like, how do you, how do you take seriously a man sitting in the Oval Office about whom we know all that we know at this point? And I don't have the answer to that question yet. Usually after an election, you'd kind of redeploy some resources away from politics and back towards the other things. Like, the right arts. There, the arts, the culture, the rest of the world, you know, and uh, because people usually are sick of politics. And yes, they're sick of politics now. But I mean, how do you, has this changed your anticipated plans for what people at Slate are going to be writing about? Are we still going to have the same emphasis on culture and on everything away from politics? Or is politics going to be for the foreseeable future the only thing our readers care about? We're definitely going to be doing more politics and policy than I was anticipating. I mean, you know, we were having conversations a couple of weeks ago when it seemed like it was locked up for Clinton of like, what will Slate even be in December? Like, what is there? What this this story of this? I mean, it's remarkable to me. You've been covering politics longer than I have, Jacob. But, you know, in the in the presidential elections of my adult lifetime, we've had now at least three that seemed like unprecedented, crazy shit shows out of a TV show, right? Like <laughs> 2000, where you're like, it's a fucking tie. It's going to the Supreme Court. Like, the, no. And then, um, I mean, last night felt a lot like the dismay of 2004, but that was a more normal election. And then 2008, which had just these antic characters and this this crazy battle and this sense that our nation's notion of what its future could be um, was broader and different and more hopeful and exciting than I think a lot of people thought. And then this one. And, and um you know that the the focus on this as a campaign, as an election, as a unexpected circus uh, has been all consuming for the magazine. But I think we will be focusing more on on Trump, on the administration, on policy than we were planning in the event of a Hillary Clinton administration. Well, despite the result. You and the Slate team have done a tremendous job, and I think everyone at Slate feels they're very lucky to have you leading us into this unknown territory. I'll do my darndest. Thanks for talking to me, Julia. Thanks, Jacob. My last guest today is Slate's chief political correspondent, Jamel Bowie. He's here in our New York office. Jamel, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. So you were uh, live on CBS last night. We were at what was uh, supposed to be a viewing election night viewing party. Trumpcast had in Brooklyn it turned into a little bit more of a wake, but we, we kept seeing you on the screen, sometimes with audio, but more often not. But what was it like, CBS? I mean, everyone must have been flummoxed there by the result, right? I think as it began coming in, um, you saw the mood of everyone there, but it's particularly the support staff, um, the interns, the assistants, um, the makeup people, the stylists, um, the janitors, the people who are bringing us food who were largely younger or, or, or older, sort of closer to elderly than, than not, or uh, largely people of color. And their mood went into sort of like, oh, this is just work to, oh, this is something very serious. I think among the talent, um, we were, you know, there's lots of sort of, oh, this is interesting, this is unexpected, the kind of political junkie approach. But I think among the people who are there just to do their job, uh, the mood at CBS got pretty, um, got pretty dark. Yeah. I mean, we've been talking, uh, I talked to Isaac Chotner and to Julia Turner about this natural tendency now that's already kicking in to normalize Trump, to fit him into what we expect from American politics. That was sort of ground zero for it, right? A major network broadcast on election night. Did you see that happening? I don't think I saw that happening among the people leading CBS's broadcast coverage. I think CBS did a great job of being very sober-minded about what's happening, not being, you know, I watched a little bit of CNN, and it's very sort of, um, you know, frantic about the events unfolding. I thought CBS was very professional and very, um, very much treated this with the weight it deserved. I think it'll remain to be seen how the broader political news media approaches Trump. I do think I already see signs of this normalization, not just of Trump as president, which I have to confess is still a thing that is difficult to say, but I see a, a pretty rapid move to treat his victory um, or the, the the people or the reasons for his victory as um, kind of generic anti-elitism, generic populism, and not something with a much more specific 
root in American history. Jamal, as you've been writing about the campaign this year, you, you've applied a very lucid racial lens to it. You've not tried to explain away anything that Trump is saying. You've, you've, you've been very direct about his racism. And you did a piece last night called White Wins. And you, I wonder if you just tell the story. You describe going home after leaving the CBS studio uh, and, and speaking to some black policemen. Right. So um, around 1130 last night, I, you know, my wife was, is in D.C. and it's about to go to sleep. So I just wanted to give her a call and talk to her about what was happening. And when I was coming back to the studio from that walk, I ran into two black police officers who I think were posted outside of the building um, just to, you know, make sure nothing, nothing crazy happened. And normally when I walk past cops, regardless of what color they are, I don't like, you know, veer in their direction. I kind of just like, oh, I'm going to ignore them because they're police officers. But in this case, they were kind of, they looked very somber and they were chatting and I kind of wanted to keep talking to people. So I walked over to them and rather than send me away, they were like, hey, you know, I, I think, I, I, to be frank, I think it was a moment of racial solidarity. Yeah. Like three black men all around the same age um, experiencing something together and we just kind of chatted. And one of the officers who I would say was like either my age or like a little younger was pretty convinced that this was this was a this put his allegiance to the test as a police officer who in the age of Trump where Trump in his mind stands for white people primarily who was he supposed to be protecting and listening to him talk about this and listen sort of thinking of what I thought about this election it really did occur to me that um or affirmed um, my sense that what this election has been about has not really been about populism or about, you know, anti-Washington sentiment. Um, those things have always existed and they didn't result in someone like Trump. The thing that makes Trump unique is that unlike his predecessors, Romney or McCain, he um, indulged explicitly the the latent white tribalism in this country. And people responded in kind. And so like that officer, I think that does force reckoning. Like who, you know, what, who is this country for? Who does it belong to? And last night, it seems that some decisive number of white Americans said that it belonged to them. Yeah. I mean, the term white tribalism suggests that most people, most white people are naturally going to vote for the white candidate who who says he's going to represent their interests against other racial or minority or ethnic interests. Do you think that describes a thought process going on in the head of a lot of white voters or it's not a thought process at all? Yeah, I, I'm not sure. So it, it's it's complicated. This is one of those things where it's both it's a both there's a both and phenomena happening. It's both the case that the reasons for Trump's emergence and success is complex are complex and multifaceted. But it's also true that the United States has a long and and actually, you know, pretty easy to understand um, in terms of the, the historical cycles of it, of racism, and that Trump distinguished himself from past nominees by essentially rejecting the consensus around the use of explicit racism, of running a campaign based on explicit racism. And... What I think that did, and this is something I didn't appreciate during this election. It really only occurred to me, now that he's won, it kind of dawned on me what happened. But when you're Romney or when you're McCain or when you're George Bush, when you're Bob Dole, and you don't use explicit racism, you make political combat nominally colorblind. Obviously, mm -hmm. race still plays a part in all of this, but it's it's also the case that you can debate about tax rates and the size of government without it being explicitly racial. And it can work on your behalf without you ever acknowledging it right. or directing it. Right. Yeah. Um, what Trump did was sort of threw that aside and said that, no, the actual the stakes of this election are actually racial. They're actually about who controls this country. Is it going to be people like you or people like them? And what we've seen in American history is that figures who can put things in those terms have a lot of success, whether they are George Wallace as governor of Alabama and then as a presidential candidate, um, whether they are pitchfork Ben Tillman, a South Carolina governor and, and senator who was very progressive in his economic policies, but was a virulent white supremacist who won his elections on the basis of that fact. If you can 
describe political combat in these explicitly racial terms, you will bring white voters over who, whether whether or not they personally dislike blacks or Hispanics or Muslims, whether or not they personally use racial slurs, they have this unease or feeling that the country is slipping away from them. And they may not, in their minds, define this in racial terms, but you know, as analysts, as observers, as sort of people working on the first draft of history, I think we're obligated to look from a higher remove. And from a higher remove, it's very clear that the driving force here is that sense of white Americans losing their preeminent place in American life. And Trump, you know, Trump said, Trump said, I'll make America great again. I'll, I'll restore you to that as much as I can. Right. But that's really the nub of the question, Jamel, isn't it? Because, you know, when white working class voters are saying in voting for Trump, we like things the way they were before more than we like them the way they are now. And part of that, obviously, is race, that there is an inherent privilege that goes from being a lower class or working class white person and that there are there's black lower class that's expected to be below you. But it's a lot of other things too. It's we prefer when we had industrial jobs that you didn't need a college education for that you could earn a middle class income with. Uh, it's when we it's that we preferred a less globalized world. It's that we preferred the kind of popular culture and entertainment. We we preferred a less unequal division of wealth. Right. I mean, there's a lot of things that, that are rolled together. And you look at that very, th- very much through a racial lens. But how much of it is racial versus how much of it is non-racial? I mean, I think many of those things are tied up in racial dynamics. Um, to say that you want to go back to a manufacturing economy or you want a manufacturing economy like existed in the 40s or 50s is also to say that you want a segregated workplace. It's to say that you want a workplace where being white entitled you to, even among industrial jobs, the prime pick. You know, Even in the integrated unions in the CIO and, say, Detroit in the 40s, there was a clear racial hierarchy in who got the best work and who got the worst work, who was first hired, who was last, who was last fired. That I I don't think that conception of the world I don't think it's I don't think it's possible to disentangle from race and I'd even go further and argue that the entire conception of the white working class we know historically developed in the 1830s and 40s and 50s and it developed in tension with the existence of shadow slavery in the South that white workers at the time understood themselves as a class between slaves and the middle class and the upper classes and that they understood their 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 the claim they made on 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 American society was that we ought to have the same opportunities for advancement as those who are further further away materially from the condition of slaves and so when you look at it from that context the commitment to racial hierarchy that i think a lot of white working class voters expressed last night has its roots and trends and dynamics going back going back to the beginning of this country's history. I want to say also as well, though, that it is unfair to the white working class to, to sort of say that they are the ones who elected Trump. They delivered the resounding majority of their votes to, the, to Trump in a way that is not dissimilar to how Democrats win Hispanic voters, for example. But white college-educated voters voted for Trump. Young white people voted for Trump. For, for Trump. Um, white voters across class and education levels supported Trump, varying levels, but Trump won them all. What that says to me is that, yeah, whiteness is the unifying thing here. That the reason why a six-figure earning you know, businessman in uh, the Texas exurbs is voting Trump isn't because he feels economically insecure. It's because he desires um, a world where people like him are presumptively in charge. Well, so you say, but you and I in the media don't really have a high quality ongoing conversation with these people. And part of it is because we interpret their behavior as implicitly or explicitly racist. And they believe very strongly that it's not racist. And when you say that racism is embedded in all of this pref- all of these preferences for, for uh, the previous kind of life they had, they say, yeah, but not the race part. 
Right. That was unfair. We don't want that back. But we they, want everything else back. The, the, people in that position have been saying that for years. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, I can – not off the top of my head, but you can read accounts of, of workers and homeowners and such in the 50s and 60s saying exactly the same thing. And I'll say, you know, I'm from, I'm from Virginia Beach, Virginia. Um, I'm from uh, sort of an exurban, suburban area. I went to predominantly white public schools, including predominantly white university. My childhood and young adulthood was in contact with people who are basically prototypical Trump voters. And in fact, many of my childhood friends and their families are big Trump supporters. So you know, for me, as just like a person, this all makes a lot of sense. These were people in my life, many of them people in my life, who, you know, they they loved me and they loved my family and we were close. Um, but they also um, held pretty reprehensible beliefs about the place and the, and the workings of, of black Americans. And uh, saw you as an, somehow an exception or didn't count and it didn't change their overall perspective. Right, right. I think, I think people get far too caught up on the individual animus of a given person and don't pay enough attention to the extent to which people like, want to maintain the status quo. They want to maintain particular kinds of arrangements. And they will seek to do that, even if those arrangements ultimately um, reinforce racist or prejudiced or bigoted hierarchies. Yeah. Jamal, I know you're a big reader of American history, and you mentioned some some of the history of white nationalist politics, uh, George Wallace, and so on. When's the last time we had a president who used white ethno-nationalism in this way? Was it Woodrow Wilson? When did it last actually happen that someone got to the White House using this? I mean, obviously, there was a level of racism implicit in American politics in, right. the, in the first part of the 20th century and well into the 20th century. But but still, it wasn't what most presidential candidates would right. run on. It's really, you know, that's a great question. Um, because even Wilson was, was like a virulent white supremacist who resegregated the federal government. But didn't campaign on this. Yeah. Um and I think it's worth I think it's worth suggesting that maybe the difference is that those presidents and I would I would say that I would categorize those presidents as basic presidents between 1876 and um let's say 1948 American politics in this period the general assumption was white supremacy right that was that was the background radiation of american politics there were few challenges from the party system to white supremacy and so you didn't have to articulate it right you didn't you didn't have to say that we need to we make America great again by keeping out Hispanic immigrants. You would probably run on saying, you know, we need to ensure that our immigration system kept out, you know, swore the Italians and, and sort of the other European ethnics. But there was no need to make an explicit case because everyone kind of agreed about it. It was the consensus position. Now that this is not the consensus position, now that at least on Monday we had a nominal commitment to multiracial democracy, in fact, yeah, you have to make that explicit now. Um, you have to explicitly argue that you find a state of affairs where non-whites are entitled to the same respect and prerogatives as whites are to be unacceptable. And so maybe that is what makes Trump unique. I don't really, I can't, I honestly cannot think of a president who came into office bringing with him the same kinds of people who by many standards we would consider manifestly unqualified for the positions. Maybe the closest thing is Warren G. Harding, whose administration famously collapsed in the scandal shortly after it began. <laughs> yes, exactly. Quick teapot dome demise. <laughs> that would be the best case scenario. G give us, give me any positive feelings you have. This is obviously a pretty dark period and people at, at Slate are, are feeling pretty grim and, and we don't have much to look forward to. And I'm, I'm not saying that we should be blindly optimistic, but do you see right. anything positive coming out of the campaign or any way in which it just ends up not fulfilling our worst, uh, worst nightmares about how authoritarian and generally horrendous the Trump presidency could be? Yeah. Um, so my, I have a couple of abiding beliefs about politics. The first thing is winning begets winning and losing begets losing. So, I, I think Trump winning does not, there's no silver lining to draw from that. I think 
the dynamics within the Republican Party and the extent to which the Republican Party basically has uncontested control of all of American government right now means that there's not much in the way of silver linings for the future. Um, the closest thing to a silver lining I could possibly imagine is that it's pretty likely, given the behavior of past Republican presidents, that we'll get some sort of Keynesian stimulus in the next, you know, six months. Now it'd be good for the economy, <laughs> I suppose. But even that, the, you know, the actual impact of that would be to help Trump engineer like a stronger recovery and thus, you know, improve his chances for a second four years in the White House. So that's bad. Um, <laughs> Thanks for trying. <laughs> no, I mean, I think I, I, I understand fully that people want to hear something optimistic. But and I mentioned my abiding beliefs about American politics. One of those beliefs is that the American belief in a kind of teleology of progress is wrong. Um, that and, and it's wrong, maybe not from the perspective of white Americans, but from the perspective of black ones who have seen their lives in this country defined as fits and starts, um, difficult, painful fits towards a semblance of equality and progress, followed by furious backlashes. And it, it, if, if you root your analysis of America in the experiences of its black population, what you see, I think, is that there is no guarantee that anything will ever get better. None at all. And looking forward from today, I think we would do ourselves a disservice to imagine that it's just going to get better. It is, it is not necessarily going to get better. And the time horizon for which it may get better may not be 10 years, it may not be 20 years, maybe the rest of our lifetimes. I've been speaking to Jamel Bowie. He's the chief political correspondent of Slate Magazine. Jamel, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast is produced by Jason DeLeon. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. And by the way, I also joined today's political gab fest with David Plotz, Emily Bazelon, and John Dickerson, which is all about Trump, and I'd encourage you to give that a listen as well. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.